You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. up here in the third chapter of First Timothy, we just see in the flow of the context that after chapter one, at the beginning of chapter two, Paul begins to write to Timothy about things relevant to church life, about the worship services together, about prayer, about leadership, about the roles of men and women within the church. So very much continuing right along with that same theme, we come to chapter 3 where Paul is going to focus on qualifications for leaders. And in this chapter, we're going to see that he gives a list of qualifications for those for the position of bishop or overseer. I'll explain what that's about in just a few moments. And then he gives a list that's an explanation of qualifications for the position of deacon in the church. Now, This is similar to a section in the book of Titus where he gives a similar list of qualifications, but we're just going to focus on what it says here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So we begin with verse 1 that says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, it's important to say that as Paul deals with qualifications for those who would be leaders spiritually and in the roles of deacons practically among God's people, that he very much has in mind that this is something in distinction to what he's just laid out in chapter 2. Now, I spent a long time talking about it last Wednesday night, how I genuinely believe that Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 2 which is completely consistent with his teaching in 1 Corinthians and in other books of the New Testament, that his teaching is that women should not hold positions of spiritual leadership or doctrinal authority over the congregation in general. And I took a great deal of time to explain at least my perspective, and and I think which is the historical perspective on that particular section. But it's important to understand that at the outset here, Paul is not trying to imply at all that you're eligible or qualified for leadership just because you're a man. What a strange thought that would be, that somebody's gender would qualify them for leadership. No, 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 that's not the idea at all. And we realize that there is actually a, a relatively small segment of men, so to speak, within a congregation that would fulfill these qualifications. And so that's why he lays them out in this very straightforward and objective way. Adding here in verse 1, if a man desires the position of bishop, the office Paul described here is the office of Bishop. Now, we kind of have our own connotation of the idea of a bishop. Uh, it could be a guy in a pointy hat you know, holding a bishop's crook or whatever it is, a bishop's staff that they have. Well, I mean, that's sort of a religious outworking of this term. Actually, it just comes from a particular idea from this ancient Greek word that we translate bishop. It's the Greek word episkopos. It literally means, very literally, over, that is epi, watcher or seer, skopos, to scope something out. It's an overseer. That's all it is. 
So we're not talking about a fancy religious title here. Paul didn't pick a term that was only known among the priests or among, you know, other religious kind of leaders. This is actually a word from the business world, just from the cultural world of that time. Someone who would be an overseer, a leader among God's people. And in Acts chapter 20, we learn that there were in fact several bishops, that is overseers, over the particular congregations in Ephesus. No doubt that these were men who had oversight, because that's what a bishop has, oversight. He watches over. Oversight over the different house churches that met throughout the city and the entire region of Ephesus. Now, based on what bishop means, we understand that it just is someone with oversight in the church, a leader. But that same kind of person can also be called in the New Testament an elder. That's a term taken mainly from the Jewish world. The Jewish world had the concept of the elders of the community. So you have bishop, elder, and then a third word that's used in the New Testament is pastor, which simply means shepherd. And so you have these three ideas very um, firmly in the New Testament, the, the idea of the overseer, the idea of the elder, the idea of the pastor. And I'll be honest with you, When you study these throughout the New Testament, sometimes it seems like they're talking about the exact same thing. Other times it seems like there might be slight variation between them. But the idea is just basically that these are offices, these are titles. Some people have thought, well, let's just break it down. It could be referring to the same person, but bishop refers to their competency. They're a leader, they can oversee things. An elder refers just to the fact that they're a person of wisdom because an elder in those cultures was supposed to be somebody who was wiser. And then pastor has to do sort of with their heart. They're supposed to be a faithful shepherd over the congregation of God. Now, those words, bishop, elder, pastor, they all have their own kind of history and idea, but basically they refer to leaders among God's people. Now, the other thing that I find very interesting about this is this organization of the church as it's described right here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, chapter 3, and in Titus, and in the rest of the New Testament, we got to admit, it's very limited. How many elders are you supposed to have in the church? The New Testament doesn't say. Uh, For how long should they be appointed? The New Testament doesn't say. What specific duties and powers should they have? The New Testament doesn't say. Uh, Can there be one elder or pastor over the rest of them? The New Testament doesn't say. Uh, Should they be organized on a city level or just on an individual? The New Testament doesn't say. What we need to understand is that when it comes to leadership in God's family, what the New Testament is very clear about is the character of the leader. What it's not so clear about is organization. And I'll give you the takeaway that I gained from that. You can take it or leave it because this isn't exactly demanded by the text, but it's my understanding here, is that when it comes to leadership in God's church, character is much more important than structure. You see, traditionally among churches, there's been three traditional forms of church government. 
There's the church government that is congregationally led. That is, everything just kind of happens democratically, and they have votes on everything. And maybe some of you come from churches like that. I know some people are familiar with especially in Europe. It's a common way to have a church. Every month, you have a congregational business meeting, and you vote on what color coffee cups you should buy for the... I mean, literally, all that kind of stuff, and it's just good. You do everything by congregational vote. And another form of church government is known as Presbyterian or elder rule. Now, that comes from this ancient Greek word for elder, which is presbyteros. And that has the idea that leadership should just be done on a committee basis. Then you have another form of church leadership that emphasizes the idea of the bishop, as it's revealed here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, with the idea that there would be one leader who would oversee and other leaders working in cooperation with him. This is what I'm just trying to explain, is I don't think that the Bible commands any one specific form of church government. Now, I can talk to you about the relative wisdom of church governments, and here at Calvary Chapel, what we have is we definitely have a team of elders, but the emphasis is on the calling and the vision and the gifts that God gives to our pastor, Tommy Schneider. That's just how we understand it, and it works. Praise the Lord, it works. But the most important thing is not the structure, it's the character. You can have the best structure in the world if you put in it men of bad character, it's going to sink. And when people have problems with church government, oftentimes they turn to structure. They think, well, if we just need a better structure and this will be fixed. Listen, the bottom line is just simply this. Character is what matters most in church leadership. Now, I don't mean this tonight to be an examination of the three different forms of church government and to go all off on that. That's an interesting thing, and if you're interested in that, you can talk to me personally about it. I want to get more into what Paul talks about being the character of leaders because this is the far more important dynamic. But I do want to mention one other thing before we leave verse 1. Notice what he says. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. If you want to be an overseer among God's people, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a pastor, you need to realize that you're being called to a good work. And I would emphasize both of those words. It's good. Praise the Lord. I like to encourage people to be involved in ministry. I love speaking with young people who feel a call on their life I feel like God may want to use me in a particular way with a particular calling to give a particular devotion to the service of God in this world and his people. I love pouring my time and my life into young people who feel like they have that call. It is something good, but don't miss the second word. It is a good work. And you better believe it's work. It's work if you're doing it right. If it's all easy and peaches and cream and oh, it's just like that's you're probably not doing it right. Spiritual leadership in the church isn't about titles, and it isn't about honor, and it isn't about glory. Fundamentally, it's about work. Jesus said, if anyone desires to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's a good work, but it's a hard work. And to quote Charles Spurgeon, you can bet Spurgeon has something juicy to say on this one. He says, quote, what is the use of a lazy minister? He's no good either to the world, to the church, or to himself. 
He's a dishonor to the noblest profession that can be bestowed upon the sons of men. Amen. All right. He desires a good work. Well, what are the qualifications? In the beginning of verse 2, just the first few words of verse 2, he says, a bishop then must be... Now, we'll talk in a moment about these different things that he says a bishop must be. And we'll go over them fairly quickly. We're not going to do an in-depth word study on every single qualification. But I just want you to understand this initial phrasing. A bishop, an overseer, a spiritual leader among God's people must be and understand that God has specific qualifications for leaders in the church. Leaders are not to be, for example, chosen at random. You just go around and just eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You just don't do that. No, that's not it at all. Nor are they to be chosen just because they volunteer. They're not to be chosen just because they aspire to a position or not even be, or excuse me, they're not even to be appointed to a position because they are what we might consider to be natural leaders. That in and of itself isn't enough. Instead, leaders must be chosen primarily on how they match the qualifications here. I want you to notice something. We're going to go through these qualifications. Again, we're not going to dwell on each individual one, but in a fairly you know, comprehensive manner, we'll look at each one. I want you to notice something as we go through this list. This list shows that leadership among God's people has very little to do with what we normally consider to be giftedness. Nowhere in here does he say, get the um, best Bible teacher you can find. Nowhere in here does he say, get the most charismatic personality you can find. No, this is about character. He doesn't say, go out and get the most gifted men. And I think this is the reason why. is because God can fairly easily bestow gifts upon a man. But character? That takes time to develop. Character has to be proven. Character doesn't happen overnight. And with all that, we can say, listen, being a good talker does not automatically qualify a man for spiritual leadership. Going to seminary does not automatically qualify a man for spiritual leadership. Natural or even spiritual gifts in themselves do not qualify one for spiritual leadership. What one gives in money or volunteer time does not automatically qualify them for spiritual leadership. What qualifies a man for spiritual leadership is godly character and godly character as it's established by this list in 1 Timothy. And if you want to add the list in Titus as well, that's fine. Now, I think I presented that pretty strong, didn't I? Well, I'm not trying to take any of this back with what I say next, but I do need to balance this out just a bit. It's possible to take this list in an overly rigid way. It's possible to take this list and say, well, you know, this guy lost his temper 20 years ago. He'll never be um, qualified for office among God's people. It's possible to take this list in an overly rigid, legalistic way, a way which demands perfection in all these areas. There's a sense in which these are goals to reach for and a general criteria for selection. When you're looking for church leaders, you should look to this list and you should ask, 
This man that we're considering, does he desire these things with all his heart? You take a look at this and you say, does that desire show itself in his life? Can somebody look at this man's life and say, yes, he values these things. He pursues them. Maybe he's not perfect regarding them, but this is a real desire. He values these things and you can see it in his life as well. And I'm going to speak just a little bit pragmatically here. Is this the guy that matches this list best among the other qualified candidates? Sometimes you just got to deal with what you have. And you see, are there other people available who better fulfill the requirements of this list? So again, he says, a bishop then must be one other thing. I keep saying this. uh, You can probably count the numbers. I try to say one other thing here tonight. This is a list describing the qualifications and the character of bishops, overseers, spiritual leaders among God's people. We all understand that, don't we? But isn't this a valuable list for every believer? Every single one of us. Because even though we may not be or aspire to be or ever be placed in a position of spiritual leadership, This is a list that kind of gives us a very easy way to understand this is what God thinks highly of godly character about. This is it. And so for a man or a woman, you can take a look at this list and just say, how does my life match up into these things? This is something that can really be of benefit for each and every one of us. So now pick it up again. Verse 2, where we read. A bishop then must be blameless... The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So do you see this list that Paul lays out here? Timothy, you need good, qualified men to help you there in the work in Ephesus. Because this wasn't just a work over one congregation, even a large congregation. This was a work over many congregations. You need qualified leaders. Let me show you how to judge their character. And the first thing he lists in verse 2 is that a man must be blameless. Now, this word fundamentally means nothing to take hold upon. There's nothing in this man's life that others can take a hold of and bring disrepute to the church about. It's sort of a broad term for a man who lives a righteous life that can be seen as righteous. Nobody can stand up and accuse the man rightfully, accurately, of grievous sin. And so first, blameless. Secondly, again still in verse 2, the husband of one wife. I think this particular qualification has been often misunderstood. Sometimes it's been misunderstood in the terms of that a leader or overseer in God's church must be married. I don't think that's true. 
If it were true, you'd have to cross off both Jesus and the Apostle Paul off your list of, you know, potential candidates there. Now, I don't think it's a requirement that they must be married, but it means that they must be faithful to their wife. The the idea here is basically, and I've heard some Greek commentators translate it with this very same phrase, that he's a one-woman man. Again, not that he must be married, Nor is the idea that the leader could never remarry if his wife had passed away. The idea is that love and affection and heart are given to one woman. And that one woman being his lawful and wedded wife. If I could put it in the negative, I'd say this means that the biblical leader, he's not a playboy. He's not a player. He's not an adulterer. He's not a flirt. And he does not show romantic or sexual interest in other women, including, I would say, those depictions or images of other women in pornography. This right here saying, listen, men, your your attention should be focused on one woman. That's your wife, not others. The next one, again, in verse 2, temperate. This is the idea of someone who is not given to extremes. They're reliable and trustworthy. You don't have to worry about them having wide swings of vision or mood or action. They're just kind of stable people. The next one in verse 2, sober-minded. This really doesn't have anything to do directly with intoxication, This describes the person who's able to think clearly and with clarity. They're not always joking around, but they know how to deal with serious subjects in a serious way. Listen, I think that the potential leader among God's people, you should have a sense of humor. If you don't have a sense of humor, you better get one because there's going to be lots of reasons to laugh. Most importantly, looking at yourself, there's going to be reasons to laugh. But again, sober-minded means, hey, I'm just not all, just everything's not one big joke to me. We know when to make it serious. The next one listed in verse 2 is of good behavior. The idea there is simply being orderly. It's actually the same word translated modest in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 9 in reference to how women should dress. One man suggests that the idea here is of dignified, that the guy just has a proper bearing. The next one in verse 2, hospitable. They're willing and able to open up their home to both friends and strangers. Next, still in verse 2, able to teach. They are skilled enough in the Bible to be able to teach others. Now, I don't think that this requires that they teach others necessarily the way I'm teaching right now, one person standing in front of many people in a congregation. Listen, I know, and probably you know, that sometimes some of the best teaching that happens in the church happens with one or two or three people sitting across from each other over cups of coffee. That's teaching just as much as this is teaching. But you should be able to be able to teach if you're going to have this position of overseer, of an episcopos, a bishop over God's people. Next, now we're into verse 3. It says that the one should be not given to wine. And the idea here 
is that they're not addicted to wine or intoxicating drink. Now, this verse in and of itself, it does not prohibit godly leadership from drinking alcoholic beverages, but it clearly discourages it. That's something to look for in people who would be an episcopos, a leader, a pastor among God's people. And I often give people the exhortation that the easiest way to deal with that is to just not drink. I mean, that's just the easiest way to deal with it. I I have to be honest with you here. This is not prohibiting the consumption of alcohol by this bishop, this episcopos. It's saying that they be not given to it, But the easiest way to fulfill that, and it is an easy, simple way, is to just be temperate and to not partake at all. I like the old Puritan commentator, John Trapp. Sometimes he has a kind of a poetic, old English way of putting things. He says that this person should be no ale steak, tavern haunter, that sits close at it while the wine inflame him. Well, amen. That tavern haunter. Trap had a poetic way of saying things, that's for sure. Uh, Next in verse 3, we have the idea of not violent. This is a man who's not given to violence, either publicly or privately. The man who can let God fight his cause. Listen, I, I think it's always advisable... If a man is under consideration for a position of spiritual leadership in a church, elder, pastor, I think it's always good to interview the wife privately and to ask her, hey, these are some of the qualifications of a leader. Is it, and, and listen, she may be very hesitant to bring up specific instances, but you should be able to, be, do you think that this man's qualified? We need to know that you do. Because again, this violence That is mentioned here, it could be expressed either in a public or in a private way. Verse 3 continues on, not greedy for money. you got to like the way that the old King James Version puts it. It's far more memorable. It says, not greedy of filthy lucre. (laughs) Well, it's true. This is a very important point. That a person shouldn't be greedy to be among leaders and God's people. Not long ago, I read this really wonderful thing written by a great man of God who's passed on to his reward many years ago, a man named R.A. Torrey. And R.A. Torrey was, in his youth, an associate of the great American evangelist and preacher, D.L. Moody. And after D.L. Moody died, R.A. Torrey wrote a beautiful a memoir of him, really an essay, and it was seven reasons why God used D.L. Moody. And one of the reasons, just one of the seven, I recommend the whole list to you, but one of the reasons was he was completely free from the love of money. And I tell you, that's something, if you want to excel as a spiritual leader, ask God to purify your heart in that area. Verse 3 continues on, gentle, Again, you don't think of yourself like, you know, some action movie star, but you consider yourself like Jesus. Verse 3, not quarrelsome. The kind of person who's not always fighting over something or other. Look, we know that there's some people like that. Their life isn't energized unless they're fighting over something. And maybe there's a place for that. Maybe God can channel that into a good direction, but probably not in spiritual leadership over his people. Uh, Verse 3 continues on, not 
covetous. Now you might think that this was already covered when it said not greedy for money, but this is a more encompassing thought than merely greedy for money. The covetous man is never satisfied with anything. The covetous man feels like, I always got to have more, 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 something more, something different. It speaks to a fundamental dissatisfaction of soul, and that's not a good place for a person to be. Now we go into verse 4 where it says, someone who rules his own house well. Brothers and sisters, the godly leader demonstrates his leadership ability first in his own home. Paul recognized that it's first in the home where our Christianity is demonstrated. His ability to take care of the church of God. Do you see that phrase in verse 5? It's built on the foundation of leading his own house well. Now it's true, I believe at least, that even a godly leader may have some trouble in his home. But you need to take a look very carefully. Well, the trouble that's in their home, is it because of the poor leadership of this man in his home? Or is it despite the poor leadership or the good leadership, I would say, of that man in his home? This is the question that has to be asked. I don't think it's a question, is is there uh, the complete absence of a problem in the home? But how are the problems handled? Is it godly leadership in the midst of the home, even when there are problems? Does he rule his own house well? And then verse 6, we get into the idea, not a novice. New converts should not be given leadership too quickly. The leader should be well past the novice stage in their spiritual development. You know, the idea of a novice there is just simply another way to say newly planted. And when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's good to not put them in a place of leadership until they've been allowed to grow a bit and develop some roots. Now, I would make a distinction, and I just need to be very straightforward with you. Some people don't make this distinction, but I would make the distinction between a place of service and a place of leadership. And I'll speak in a little bit of an exaggerated way here, just for a moment, but just so you kind of get the idea. I think that a place of service should be open to anybody who's just come to Jesus. You don't need to have spiritual maturity to find a way to serve the Lord. So if somebody wants to come and help set up chairs, we don't need to start judging you by this list. But, but if it goes into a true place of spiritual leadership or responsibility, now, I know that there's some pastors who feel, feel very strongly, no, a person's not going to do a single thing around the church unless they have some, well, then that's their kind of peculiarity, and I would certainly respect it in their own congregation. But I would make personally the distinction between a position of service and a position of leadership. But it's no doubt that promoting a novice too quickly gives occasion to the great sin, the sin of pride. You saw how he stated it there in verse 6 and 7. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. What was the source of the devil's fall? It was pride. And when you give people responsibility too soon, you can help puff them up in a place that outstrips their spiritual maturity. And to sort of seal it all up in verse 7, 
He says, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. These characteristics must be evident to all. In other words, the man has to live a life that's seen as godly. Seen as godly, not just within the church, but those within the community as well. To be a man of good reputation and a good testimony. Now next, we see starting in verse 8, he starts to give the qualifications for deacons. Look at what he says. Again, just the first few words of verse 8 say this. Likewise, deacons must be... Now this is a very interesting office within the church. It seems like we have a great example of the appointment of deacons in Acts chapter 6 where the apostles saw the need to distribute the daily assistance to the widows among the church, yet the apostles themselves didn't have the time to adequately deal with the proper administration of that. So what did they do? They chose men to essentially act as deacons in that church. And so now Paul is going to list several qualifications for deacons. Now, we're just going to really focus on the ones that are different or in addition to, let's say, than the qualifications for elders, because several of them are the same terms given. But this is important to see, that this idea of having the spiritual responsibility in the church to make sure needs are being met, this was seen in some sense as a spiritual office. And it's a mistake to look at this as being more prestigious one than the other. Oh, it, well, yeah, you're nothing if you're a deacon, if you're just meeting practical needs within the church. Oh, so you're just counseling with people and helping them through their budget and helping them with practical things. Well, that's not very spiritual. You've got to be an elder. No. You understand the Bible doesn't put that kind of thing on us at all. It's all spiritual service that God receives and appreciates. So what are these qualifications for deacons? Again, verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, Faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Now, right off the bat, as I read to you the list of the qualifications for overseers or bishops and the qualifications for deacons, you see there's a lot of overlap there, don't you? I mean, that just occurs to us immediately. But notice there's a few places where he phrases things at least a little bit differently. For example, he leads off with, in verse 8, saying that deacons must be reverent. That means showing proper respect towards God and man. And they must be, verse 8 says, not double-tongued. I kind of like that. Not the kind of person who speaks with a forked tongue, saying different things at the same time. No, this is the kind of man who speaks the truth the first time with no intent to deceive. Now, we see some overlap there where he says not given to much wine. We already saw that with the qualifications of overseers. Not greedy for money. We saw that one as well. Now, in verse 9, he says 
holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Those who adhere, they stick to proper doctrine and they do it out of a pure conscience. I like this. It's interesting. Deacons are not said that they need the qualification able to teach. That's something that's said of overseers and not deacons. But it doesn't mean that biblical truth is unimportant to deacons. No, they must, look at the wording, hold to the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. They know the word, they study the word, and they hold on to it with a pure conscience. And then he goes on. They must first be tested. That's in verse 10. A man demonstrates his fitness for the office in church by his conduct. Again, the idea is that these are things that are tested first. It occurs to me that maybe I should have said this at the very beginning when we're talking about overseers or deacons or pastors or elders. That first be tested is a huge aspect here mainly in this term. You don't appoint someone to that office hoping that they'll fulfill it. No, you you look for people who already have the spiritual character and who are living these things out. And those are the people that you may choose to recognize with that particular title. But if somebody's waiting until they get the title to display this character, something's wrong. No, first, they're tested. And you know, sometimes in the church, look, I I don't know what it is. I don't know how it is sometimes this way. I guess it's just human nature. But sometimes people get far too hung up on titles. Um, Sometimes it's, it's just inherent within a person that it's like, I have to have this title or my service isn't legitimate. To me, normally, And again, I'm just speaking from my own opinion. Your your own experience may be different. But to me personally, when I see somebody so anxious for a title, it's a huge red flag. I mean, my tendency is to only want to recognize with the title the people who don't care about the title. That's like, okay, great. Then I feel good about it with you. Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration because there is an appropriate place to recognize the elder to recognize the overseer, to recognize the pastor, to recognize the deacon, but you're not recognizing them hoping that that's what they will become. First, they are tested, as he says there in verse 10. Then moving on to verse 11, it says something very interesting. It says, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. It's very difficult to know at verse 11 if Paul was speaking about the wives of deacons. That's the most natural reading of the translation I just read you, the New King James Version. It may be just as possible. I would even say it's slightly more possible that what he's speaking about there is women deacons. We see in the early church there were women who seemed to serve in that office as deacon, such as... um, Phoebe, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Um, So it's possible that it's a reference to the wives of male deacons, or it's possible that he's referring to female or women deacons in the body of Christ. Now, if he's speaking mainly of a male deacon's wife, it is appropriate to understand that 
A call to church leadership involves the wife, the spouse in a marriage. It involves them. Because it's more than just like a job or a title. It's something of a calling on that man's life. And so it's appropriate to expect a certain character and conduct from the wife as well. It really is, in that sense, sort of a team playing, not because the wife is like a Mrs. Elder, that's not the idea, or a Mrs. Overseer, or a Mrs. Deacon, that's not the idea. But the idea is that this is more than just a title for the man. This is actually a calling on his life, and therefore a calling that, at least in some measure, is shared in the partnership of a marriage. So, the idea there, is she reverent? Is she not one of the slanderers? By the way, that word for slanderers there, it's the same word that we would translate devils in other places. Because that's what the word devil means. It means a slanderer. Is she temperate? Is she faithful in all things? And then it continues on there to describe things that were also described as overseers where it says in verses 11 and 12, let deacons be the husbands of one wife ruling their children and their own houses well. And then in verse 13, it gives a wonderful promise for deacons. I love this. It says, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. I think it was important for the Apostle Paul to write that, and he was truly moved upon by the Holy Spirit when he did. Because when somebody serves in somewhat practical ways, sometimes their service is forgotten. It's overlooked. I remember many, many years ago, this was in the 1980s, seeing a little drawing that somebody did, a little piece of artwork, And it showed off in the distance of the piece of artwork, kind of from the side view, a pastor on a platform preaching just like I'm preaching to you right now. But then up close in the foreground of the picture, it had from an angle off to the side, uh, the custodian with a broom right there. And the way that the article was structured and titled, it really just kind of communicates something. You know, both of these are spiritual service. Both of these are honorable before God. And it might be in the nature of people that somebody who stands before others and does what I'm doing right now, maybe I get a little more attention because there's more eyeballs on me. But let me tell you, the most important eyeballs are not any more on me than they are on the most humble, um, unknown servant in our congregation. And those eyeballs are God's eyeballs, speaking metaphorically, of course. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I mean, I think it was beautiful that Paul adds this. Let me read it to you again. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. God looks upon their work and he honors it. He just doesn't look and say, well, give me the people who have the most prominence. And those are the ones who are my my most honored servants. Let me tell you something. When we get to heaven, I think there's going to be a lot of surprises for us up there in heaven. And we know it was just not long ago 
that the very esteemed brother in America, that man who had stood so long and, and did such a glorious ministry over so many decades, Billy Graham went to heaven. And many of us have it in our minds, and we just kind of think, oh man, how awesome it's going to be for Billy Graham in heaven. Because that man preached to millions and led millions to Christ. I mean, what a thrilling thing. What, 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 what a beautiful thing, jewels in his crown. But don't be surprised for a moment when you get to heaven and you see that Billy Graham is, you know, down like number 10 million on the reward and prominent list. And it's a bunch of uh, 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 beautiful, saintly uh, old women and young men who've been just been faithful servants. And whatever God gave them to do in the body of Christ, they fulfilled it with such heart and such purpose and such calling that it far exceeds what anybody who has a lot of eyeballs on them have ever done. You understand what I'm saying? I don't say that to depreciate the work of a man like Billy Graham in the slightest, but just to say God sees God knows, and praise the Lord that he does. Now, from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, which isn't very long, it's just actually just three verses, we have Paul just kind of, um, it's one of these beautiful sections where Paul gets a little carried away with himself. Let's just jump into it. Verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Listen, Timothy, I hope I see you real soon, but but I don't know when I'm going to see you, so I wrote this letter to you. Aren't you glad that Paul didn't know when he was going to see Timothy? If he knew when he was going to see him, maybe he wouldn't have written this letter, but he wrote it, and we're so grateful for it. He goes, but Timothy, I want to remind you, I wrote you this letter so that you would know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Brothers and sisters, you just get this whole framework, because I've been going back from chapter 2 to chapter 3 and applying this to how we are together in the house of God. I'm not making it up. Paul's saying, this is how you're to conduct yourself in the house of God. So when I say it should be the men praying here, when I have this role for the women, that I want these qualified overseers, I want these people as deacons, it's not just making it up as you go along, nor is it just a localized thing. Paul didn't say how it should be done in Ephesus. He deliberately chose this grand, broad term, the house of God. And I would say very consciously, the church must regard itself as the house of God. If the church will fulfill its role as being the house of God, it'll never lack for attendance. It'll never lack for heart and enthusiasm. And let me tell you something. The church is the house of God. It's his house. He's the architect. He's the one who designed all this. He's the builder. He built the church. He lives there in the church. He provides for the church, and he is honored there, and he rules there. The church is God's house. It is his purchased possession. And this just should give a sober pause to men who are in leadership in God's church. Brother, this is God's house. It's not yours. 
You're to rule it as a faithful steward. That's how you're to lead. That's how you're to serve. As a faithful steward, not regarding it as your plaything, as your vehicle. But as it is, praise the Lord, in this congregation, it's done with a freaking, this is the house of God. It is, as verse 15 says, it is the church of the living God. You know, in the ancient Greek language, church was a non-religious word used for a group of people gathered together for a purpose. I say the word church and you get this religious idea, right? It's of course, we've been using it that way for 2,000 years. But when Paul wrote the word church, it was not a religious word at all. There were religious words he could have used, but he didn't use that. No, this is a called out group of people, a group of people called together for a specific purpose. It is God's called out assembly of the living God. And then verse 15, the pillar and the ground of truth. It is the stability. That's what a pillar speaks of. It's to be stable and it's to have this firm foundation of ground. Tragically, many churches today don't value the truth as they should. And what do they have? They have leaning pillars and shaky ground. No, the church should always have a very important valuing of God's truth. And then in verse 16, we'll end with this tonight. And uh, you, you can see where Paul gets a little carried away with himself here. Ready? Verse 16. And without controversy. By the way, let me just start right there. Without I wonder, Paul, who do you think is controverting you here? You're writing a letter to Timothy. I, I just said, you see these times in Paul's letter where his spirit just soars, no doubt influenced by the work of the Holy Spirit, but, but also just as a man, his spirit is soaring. and he's, I'm going to just wax a little poetic here. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among Gentiles, and believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now this is such a beautiful and wonderful testimony, a summary of Christian truth. It should be without controversy. By the way, it's interesting, I'd love to go around a lot of church leaders today in different churches and such and just say, do you got any problem with this? Because it should be without controversy. For example, it should be without controversy among believers that God was manifest in the flesh. That Jesus Christ was more than a man. That when he walked this earth, he was God in the flesh, the second person of the Holy Trinity. But not only that, he was justified in the Spirit. Not in any sense that Jesus once was sinful and made righteous, but no, in the sense that the Holy Spirit of God declared what he always was, completely justified before God the Father. That he was seen by angels. By the way, the angelic participation in Jesus' ministry is kind of fascinating. There it is, birth. There it is, temptation. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, there at the resurrection, angels were always scoping out what Jesus was doing. And then he was preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world. Paul himself did his best to fulfill these statements. He was very busy preaching Jesus among the Gentiles and bringing the world to belief. 
And then he says, finally, received up into glory. This reminds us of both the ascension of Jesus, that he was carried up bodily into heaven, and that now he's seated at the right hand of the power on high, ever to live to intercede for his people. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus prays for you. Look, I am a blessed man. I know that lots of people pray for me. You can be one of those lots of people too. I don't mind one bit. But sometimes I think, even if a person is so unfortunate, I think of some unfortunate believer and nobody prays for them. Wouldn't that be just kind of sad if there was a believer and nobody prayed for them? And then I think, you know what? Jesus prays for them. Isn't that wonderful? Even if you have nobody else that prays for you, the Son of God, seated at the right hand of the power on high, he prays for you. He was received up in glory. And he's the perfect fulfillment of God's perfect plan. Now, if I could just make a few comments on verse 16. It is interesting to me, and I don't know how it's laid out in your Bible. In my Bible, it's given kind of a a measured, almost like a poetic formation. That's because there's a rhythm and a poetry to this in the ancient Greek. And many, most commentators believe that Paul may be quoting a few lines from a contemporary hymn, one of the hot worship songs that was being sung among believers in his day. They would get together and sing this, and Paul just says, this expresses the the heart. Do you know this song we sing among ourselves? And wouldn't it seem to be very natural for him to do such a thing? And again, we can't say we know this for sure, but the rhythmic arrangement, just kind of the way it's presented, gives us the idea that he's quoting an early Christian song or hymn or worship chorus unto Jesus. It also shows, too, it's really not trying to be a systematic theology, right? Nowhere in it does it mention, for example, the death of Jesus on the cross. Did Paul believe in the death of Jesus on the cross? Yes. The man who said, all I know is Jesus Christ and him crucified for me. Of course he believed in the work of Jesus on the cross. But he he liked that worship song that, that didn't try to explain everything about the life of Jesus, but these things it expressed beautifully. may very well be that, but I can't come to the end of this chapter without thinking that at the end of the chapter it exalts Jesus so much. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of these descriptions of Christian character. When you go back and look at that list for the overseer, now, if you try to put my name in there or somebody else's name in there, you, you might, well, good, good, nah, good, nah, you know, whatever, I mean, you could, or at least we have something to talk about. But listen, Jesus Christ fulfills every one of them perfectly. And it just draws us back to the remembrance that real Christian living is recognizing my union with Jesus and him living that out through me. I've got some encouraging news for you. If we read through that list and you were kind of hanging your head just a little bit as we went through it, here's, if you're a believer, the best Christian in the world lives inside of you. Isn't that encouraging news? recognize rest in your oneness with Jesus, draw close to him, and see how far you go in really advancing along those beautiful lines of Christian character, knowing that he has planned for us 
to be transformed into the image of his son. That's our destiny. Father, thank you. We want to thank you this evening for giving this wonderful high vision of Christian character. We pray, Lord, that here at Calvary Santa Barbara, we would continue to live that out and that you would show us, Lord, guide us to do it better and better along the way. Jesus, we pray as well that you would give us that renewed hope, that renewed vision of knowing that in Jesus, you live inside of us and we want to go forward walking in and living in the beautiful union we have with Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you together here this evening. Thank you, Lord. Take these principles from your word, implant them in our heart, and Lord, help us to just kind of mull them over in coming days. We praise you for your presence among us. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.